0: You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi everyone and welcome to Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock, Communications Director for NCQA. A jam-packed show for you today featuring a leader from one of the country's busiest busiest healthcare systems followed by an NCQA veteran who's back to teach us a thing or two about accreditation readiness. But first, Dr. Nicola Davis is Vice President and Chief Population Health Officer at New York City's Health and Hospitals. This puts her in charge of programs from innovative care models and population health analytics to chronic disease prevention and management and the social determinants of health. An award-winning board-certified internist specializing in obesity, Dr. Davis' medical degree is from NYU, And she maintains a clinical practice in weight management at North Central Bronx Hospital. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, Dr. Davis brings us big news concerning her involvement in a new project, the New York City Public Health Corps.
1: So I'm really excited about the Public Health Corps, which was launched in New York City um, back in September of 2021. And the Public Health core is really focused on helping our communities improve after COVID-19. So it's really about a just recovery for uh, our communities that were really disproportionately impacted by COVID-19. And what's exciting about the Public Health Corps is that uh, our part of Public Health Corps, which is at New York City Health and Hospitals, um, what we're able to do is hire community health workers uh, throughout our health system with a focus focus in our um, internal medicine ambulatory clinics, our pediatric practices, as well as behavioral health. Um, and some of what the community health workers will be doing are really partnering with patients to help patients to achieve their health goals. So one big part of our program is that we're going to be hiring and we've already actually hired 250 uh, community wow. health workers and supervisors across our system. So we're going to be one of the largest uh, community health worker programs uh, in a safety net hospital system, which is amazing. A significant investment, I imagine. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Now, the other part of Public Health Corps, what, what also makes this unique, is that this is a partnership with the Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And so there's another arm of the Public Health Core that is really focused on working with community-based organizations, um, increasing the number of community health workers, um, and the hiring of community health workers by uh, community-based organizations focusing on things like vaccine communication, uh, uh, improving vaccine hesitancy, as well as chronic disease education in the communities. So you have both the community work as well as uh, what's happening in our hospital system. And so it's a real uh, amazing marrying of both public health and hospital uh, and and, uh, medical care.
0: Because it's interesting, because it uh, it is meant to, or, or at least COVID spurred this, correct? But it it appears to me, it's clear to me that it's dealing with some issues that existed in the uh, in the community in New York, in Greater New York, for a long time, even before COVID. So it is going to address more than just that.
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, you know, we know that there have been lots of inequities. In, uh, in, in healthcare. And we've seen that we've been on the front lines of it in New York City before COVID. I think COVID just really brought that to light. So it became really mainstream and, and everyone saw the inequities as we looked and as we recognized that there were higher numbers of hospitalizations and death among patients who were black and Hispanic. And we saw that in New York City, we saw that across the
0: country. Um, how, how how stark is the difference i mean is it five percent more on that you know what I mean or is it stark ridiculously it, it, different it was stark uh, the differences were really stark um in
1: the in in terms of both hospitalization and death um mm. it didn't surprise i think it didn't really surprise people who've been in this field and have recognized that they've been uh, inequities and diabetes and hypertension and Uh, and cancer, like we've seen these inequities before, but now this really became, you know, front page news. I think coupled along with the murder of George Floyd, it really raised uh, the awareness of the racial injustice in this country. And it really um, raised to to awareness uh, that in healthcare as well as in other
0: areas. You know, you used a word, doctor, earlier that I thought was very interesting, and forgive me if I'm misquoting, but you called it a just response, I think. Yeah. What do you mean by that? What is a just response?
2: So
1: it's really thinking about providing communities who've been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, as well as other health inequities, providing them with the resources so that they can have a just recovery. It's really a part of um, providing justice to these
0: communities. I have noticed uh, in some cases, some uh, politicians are trying to use equity, it appears to me, equity efforts to say, it's favoring one race over another, uh, over another, not in terms of ec- equity, but in terms of treatment, you're going to get different treatment. If you're, this is the political argument. If you're black, then if you're white, is there a danger there? Are you concerned about that?
1: So I guess, I guess I'm wondering in what, in, in, in what direction, um, that is right. Because I think, what we have been concerned about and continue to be concerned about is the fact that healthcare has been so inequitable. Um, And there are many examples of that. And when you think about equity, you're really thinking about giving everyone the opportunity to have the best health outcomes that they have, that they can have. So that's really the goal of equity. So it's not to make any one group better than another group, but it's to make sure that every group uh, has the opportunity to have the best health outcomes. And unfortunately in this country, Blacks and Hispanics and other minority groups do not have the best, um, do, do, do not have equitable healthcare and do not have the best opportunity to have those great outcomes.
0: Well, I guess this sort of leads to something that you've, you've talked about before, something called medical racism. Interesting yeah. turn of words there. Uh, uh, tell us what erasism is.
1: So, in medical erasism, what we're really talking about is erasing race from the way that we practice medicine, and um, there are algorithms that have been used in year, for years in medical practice. I, I, you know. I went to medical school and I learned these algorithms in medical school, and uh, and some algorithms put race in the equation. And um, I think the easiest way to understand this is to think about it from the perspective of someone that's biracial. And if you take someone that's biracial, so they had a white mother, black father, um, and that person goes into uh, the clinic or the hospital setting, and they had their kidney function measured. Um, The way the equation is for kidney function, if you're black, it changes the result that you would get, and it actually makes your kidney function look better um, than if you were white. And so if you take a biracial person, Now, depending on how that person put on the form, if they put black or if they put that they were white, they could get a different result for their their kidney function. So you might think, does that really matter, right? So what, they got like a slightly different number. Did that really make a difference? Well, it can make a difference because if the number is higher, um, you know, if, if you're given a number that is artificially higher than what it actually may be, then it might reduce your chances of getting referred to a kidney specialist um, or to a, re- a kidney transplant. So it might delay the time it takes for you to actually get those referrals because the result that the doctor is getting is actually a little bit higher, or in some cases, you know, significantly higher than, um, than what it really is.
0: So how do we eliminate those those instances? Are they are they um, uh, standardized? Is that a standardized thing or is that sort of some people do, some people don't?
1: Well, um, I think if you had asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said this is a standardized thing. This is what Mm -hmm. most people are doing. But there really have been amazing folks and researchers that have spent a lot of time looking at alternative alternative formulas, as well as really putting out that rallying cry that this is not appropriate for this to happen in medicine. Um, And so now we're seeing leadership both at our local level, our city level, as well as um, even nationally really looking at these different algorithms. In Mm. New York City, for example, um, uh, CIRCA, which is the Coalition to End uh, Race Correction in Clinical Algorithms, was recently launched by the New York City Department of Health, along with um, support from health and hospitals. And what this is doing is really bringing together other hospital systems in New York City, even some private practices to really think about how do we eliminate um, this race correction in in our algorithms. And I kind of use race correction in in quotes because it really isn't correcting for anything. Um, But yeah, so, but there's an organization now in New York City that this is the focus, is how do we do this and how do we support each other uh, in terms of health systems supporting each other in doing this.
0: We'll talk about COVID. Let's talk about that and, and the impact on minority populations in New York. Very, very serious, uh, seriously impacted much more than, than others, minorities are. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah, I mean, we definitely saw much higher rates of hospitalization um, from, uh, you know, in Black and Hispanics, higher rates of hospitalization, higher rates of death uh, from COVID, um, and we also saw higher rates in some um, Asian groups, some groups. So if you kind of disaggregated Asians, you would see that there were some differences in some Asian populations as well. Mm-hmm. So this is what we saw in New York City. This is what it w- was seen, I think, across the country as well.
0: What do you think? The, uh, I mean, I'm sure there are uh, certainly numerous numerous factors involved here but when you talk about this this new program um what were the the stark things that you think it will address you know one-to-one conversation is that is that a difference maker is that what it offers or is there more to it than than we're sort of giving it credit
1: yeah i mean i think it's more than just one-to-one conversation i think it's really having an advocate and a partner Um, in your health journey. So I think uh, one of the great things that a community health worker can do is really partner with that patient, help the patient to um, understand what the patient's goals are for their health and really help the patient to achieve those different goals. Um, and also helping pa- helping to understand what the barriers are that a patient may have what are what are the social factors that might be contributing to someone's outcome um, so I think you know we as, as, as doctors we kind of practice in a vacuum in some ways right We see the patient when they come and see us and sometimes patients come and they put their best foot forward and you um, and you know, they come into the practice and you, you just see what you see for the 15, 20 minutes that you may have with them. You don't see the context that that patient lives in. Um, you don't see the challenges that they may have. You might hear about it uh, if you talk to them and you ask the right questions. Maybe you will find out that um, they live in a shelter. So everything I'm telling them about what to eat just can't happen or maybe they live in an apartment where they only have um, a stovetop uh, not a stovetop but like a hot plate for example um, and so they can't follow through on on the on the recommendations that I give them um, or maybe they can't get to the pharmacy to pick up their medications there there are a number of things that can really impact someone's health outcomes and Frankly, what we do in a doctor's office and the health that they receive accounts for about 20% of someone's health outcomes. Everything else is the context in which they live and, you know, their education, their income, what they have access to. Um, And so a CHW, a community health worker, can really help a patient navigate those things um, and can really find out what are the challenges, where are the opportunities for educating the patient, Um, Can I can they accompany the patient to another appointment, Uh, can they accompany the patient to a social service agency, maybe a patient has not uh, received insurance because they couldn't complete the paperwork because they couldn't write, Uh, so a community health worker can help them with all of those things.
0: The, uh that's, it, that's exciting when you think about it. Do they, do the community, I know that you expanded, uh, and especially in New York, but everywhere, we expanded telehealth and the use of telehealth to respond to COVID. Is there a role for community workers in telehealth? And, and I'd like to hear a little bit about where telehealth stands for you all now.
1: Yeah, I mean, telehealth, we definitely uh, expanded during COVID. I think, I, I think most health systems did that, right? It was out mm-hmm. of necessity. You needed to get care to your patients, and your patients were scared of coming into the practice uh, or into the hospital. And so, um, so yes, we we all expanded telehealth. For for our community health workers, um, there there can be some things that can be done remotely. So they may, you know, uh, do some phone follow up with patients. It may not all be in person. But those relationships are probably best served when there's been an in-person meeting relationship to start to cultivate it. And then, yeah, there are opportunities that uh, they can do some follow-ups um, you, you know, via telephone.
0: I, I think in many cases, the wrestle with equity has been um, surface in the past. And like you said, they've really turned up the heat. So it'd be exciting to be part of that work. Uh, and to see the advancements, because I believe they'll, they'll come.
1: Yes, I fully, I fully agree with that. I think, I think we've paid uh, a lot of lip service to equity. And I think this is uh, something that's real and concrete and you know, patients can visibly feel uh, that this is a real intervention and something that can transform the way in which they relate to the health system.
0: Let's talk about your work, which I think is is really, really interesting. and um, uh, the empathy in me uh, comes out when we talk about folks with uh, dealing with obesity, um, because uh, so many of us fit into that category and even and don't even think that we do. Like we don't even think of ourselves uh, as having, and you know, for me to lose 15 pounds. Uh, which is what I need to lose, um, it is really difficult for 15 pounds, which is sort of nothing, right? So when people are dealing with with real obesity and uh, not equipped with the tools to actually uh, deal with it, I guess it makes it all the more difficult. And that's why I just think your work is so uh, interesting, Um because I have a lot of empathy for folks who are dealing with this and, and feel powerless. So tell us, it is, especially obesity is significant among low-income populations. Yes,
1: Correct? it is. Yes, yes, it mm-hmm. is. Um, you know, rates of obesity have steadily increased in this country, um, and it is also disproportionately higher in uh, in minority communities and, and amongst Black and Hispanic um, as well, uh, you know, and, you know the reason's being or some of those reasons can be environmental you know what what they have access to uh what's found in some low income communities the advertising the marketing of unhealthy foods uh that happens it's so it's so prevalent uh i mean i can go into some neighborhoods and every block there's you know different fast food uh, places, and then you can go into some neighborhoods and, and you can't find uh, fast food, right? Um, so the way things are zoned uh, and the marketing of them is, is really contributes to what that community has access to and contributes to the weight in that community. Um, I remember when I first started working in the Bronx uh, many, many years ago, it's, it's changed a little, <laughs> a little bit now. But uh, I first started working in the Bronx a long time ago. And uh, and one of my first days, I'm just like, okay, I want to go and find a salad for lunch. And I walked about 10 blocks and and gave up. I was just like, there, there's, I'm not going to be able to find a salad. Like, I, I walked, I spent probably a half hour walking and could not find a salad.
0: Um, that's that's really sad, you know? And um, I mean, that's saying a lot in New York, I mean, because there's establishments every corner right but not the right ones <laughs>
1: depending on the neighborhood that mm-hmm. you are in right so mm-hmm. that would never midtown manhattan that's not going to happen i might pay right. i might pay a lot for a salad but i'm going to find a lot of places with a salad but mm-hmm. you go to some areas um and still some areas in in the bronx I can still walk blocks. And if I find a salad or find a fruit and vegetable, um, you know, I'm a little skeptical about <laughs> it. I look at it, I'm like, mm,
0: Could I'm be a little really- iffy.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a little iffy. So, you know, that's unfortunate. It shouldn't be like right. that, right? Um, and so when patients, uh, my patients, when that's their access, it's hard for me to say eat five servings of
0: fruits and vegetables per day unbelievable oh, and, and difficult so how can community workers and how can health systems address that issue how can they help yeah well
1: you know we've been we've been really talking a lot about how how to help in that right sometimes you have to bring the fruits and vegetables to your patients and that's something that i'm hoping that we can do in the future Um, uh, looking at food pharmacy models, there are some, you know, some places, some systems that have food pharmacies. I think it's fantastic, right? Your patient can come in, they can pick up Um, their medications and they can also pick up fruit and vegetables, right? And hopefully over time, they're picking up less medications and more fruit and vegetables because they're doing all of the, they're able to now do more of the healthy things and you can actually start to reduce some of those medication needs for things like diabetes and hypertension. And um, so that would be the ideal and that would be the dream. So I'm hoping that uh, we'd be able to work towards that, uh, in our health system as well as others.
0: Uh, the, the connection to diabetes is significant for obesity. And I, I, I sort of wonder, um, you know, which begat which or, or which, you, you know, chicken egg kind of conversation there. We know that African-American certainly communities are much more affected by, uh, by diabetes and high blood pressure stuff that puts them in, um, uh, at risk for, uh, at higher risk for kidney disease and and kidney loss and uh, a mess. So what is, is the chicken and egg, um, which one's first or do do they walk hand in hand?
1: Well, in in general, when you're talking about, when you're talking about diabetes and adult populations, in general, the obesity comes first and obesity can then lead to insulin resistance or the way your body manages insulin and then that can lead to the development of diabetes. Uh, That's generally what we see in in adults, right? Right. Um, So so that's usually the pathway. What we know is that you can lose a modest amount of weight. We're talking 5% of your weight and really lower your chances of getting diabetes. And that's, that's amazing and that's great news. For, uh, for people to hear. So you don't have to lose 50 pounds to lower your chances of getting diabetes, right? You can lose 20 pounds um, and lower your chances. So if you weigh 200 pounds and you lose 20 pounds, you're really going to lower your chances of getting diabetes. And you're lowering your chances of getting diabetes by about 60%. And that's mm-hmm. diet and exercise. Um, And so that's really, I think, an amazing, amazing uh, thing for people to know.
0: Doctor, we're going to finish up here, but I uh, wanted to to ask you in the overall conversation we're talking, here, really Mm -hmm. mostly about health equity and your big news uh, about a a new army of folks in New York who are going to tackle that issue, among others. Um, What? uh, what excites you the most in this conversation and what do you fear the most?
1: Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think what excites me the most is that people are starting to pay attention to the root causes of what goes into someone's health. I think that's really, really exciting. Um, I think we start to get away from blaming uh, individuals for their health outcomes and really understanding um, the context that they're in and really trying to shape their context so that they can have uh, better health outcomes. And I think that that's really, really exciting. Um, I think what what makes me a little uh, afraid is that people will start to ignore and think that, uh, okay, we've done that and and that's enough. Um, And and I think these are longstanding issues that take a long time for us to correct. So this is, you know, the health inequities that we've seen have not happened overnight, right? It's been borne out over years. And so I don't expect that it's going to improve overnight and we need to have continued focus on it so that we really can um, help patients to achieve the optimal health outcomes that they can have.
0: Well, thank you very much for for joining us, Doc. I, I really appreciate it. I think it's very interesting uh, what you all are doing and advancing and perhaps uh, creating a model for others to follow across the country. Thank you for joining us on Inside Healthcare.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure.
0: Dr. Nicola Davis with high level and ground level perspectives on public health workers, obesity, and solving historic gaps in equity in a pandemic age. Thank you. Next up on the show, a chat with Dana Bell. After 20 years with NCQA, Dana is a leading expert in accreditation, how to get it, and how to keep it. She's now in a new leadership role, a quality leadership role with a huge firm that you might be familiar with, but is still taking accreditation very seriously. In fact, she returned to lead a webinar in accreditation readiness here at NCQA, which you can find online and on our website. Here's our talk with Dana Bell. Hi, everyone. We have a great second guest today, special guest, Dana Bell. She's currently And newly, the Executive Director for Healthcare Quality for Aetna, CVS Health. But we've known her a long time here at NCQA. She is an NCQA veteran. When she left us, she was Assistant Vice President uh, for Accreditation. And you can see she has a blossoming career, which is why she is the featured speaker, the faculty for one of our uh, Education Opportunities, Accreditation Readiness, and few people will know better than her on how to prepare. Hi, Dana. Welcome to Inside Healthcare.
2: Hi, Matt. Nice to see you again.
0: Good to see you. Tell us, uh, give us the rundown real quick of this, this course. What is accreditation readiness really? And and why is it you know the secret elixir why is it great
2: so accreditation readiness is the concept that In order to really be truly be successful as a health plan, it's important that you're proactive in all of your accreditation activities. Oftentimes, organizations find themselves struggling for resources, and accreditation sometimes, to be honest with you, is something they do off the side of their desk. Not that they don't value the importance of accreditation of what NCQA has to offer, but they're just so busy doing the day-to-day data task of mannering the qi program managing their credentialing activities that accreditation sometimes gets thrown to the wayside so the idea of this course is to give health plans and organizations tools and techniques to be more proactive as opposed to reactive and preparing for their accreditation surveys
0: you know it's interesting to me having worked in communications for healthcare organizations including ncqa but before ncqa it is funny how uh, organizations can sort of lull, especially when you're on a, a three-year or, or two-year interval. Mm-hmm. Um, even in a year interval, when they come to check, right, uh, people suddenly pay attention or re- or may have some regrets about how much they didn't pay attention during the lull. Um, how does, so there is a real value, I imagine, in sort of keeping your game Uh, accreditation ready?
2: Yes, because, you know, as we both know, NCQA has cutting edge requirements in terms of being competitive out there in the field. And you have to it isn't something you can just wake up and say, oh, I'm going to go do an NCQA survey tomorrow. Your organization really has to have a strong foundation of quality and knowing what it means to put sound structures in place to make sure that you're. Appropriately training your staff on what your policies and procedures are, uh, making sure that you have appropriate protocols in place for as it relates to security for files, and especially in this day of in this day of age. So I just think that it's just a, a accreditation readiness. I want to get to the point where it's the foundation for all organizations, as opposed to like I said, a reactive activity.
0: And it sounds like and I know you. So it's more about it's not about chastising. It's really right. about this class is about encouraging. Correct. Yes,
2: exactly. And I think what I found. So um, Vince and I have been having conversations about this class for probably more than a year now. It seems it was probably before COVID. <laughs> I feel like the mm-hmm. life is before and after COVID. Uh, and one of the things that um that the reason why I thought this class was appropriate is because there are so many courses teaching you the letter of the law in terms of what the requirements are. But this is almost like the precursor to that, or what do you have to do in addition to that? How do you work with your teams to get them to stay accreditation readiness? What are some best practices as it relates to working with your vendors and working with teams across the organization? What can you do in terms of making sure that your files are ready. It's not just about your structures and your processes, but you know, are there file audits that you can do, and what tools and techniques does Create offer for that? Um, especially for our smaller organizations. So you know, I am fortunate. I do work for a larger national organization, and they've been in the game a long time. But some of these smaller organizations, they need additional guidance, and they can't. They don't necessarily can afford a consultant that is going to charge them a couple hundred dollars an hour to teach them these things. So I felt like it was important just to sort of touch on some of those basic um, systems and items that an organization can put in place to help them stay more ready.
0: Here's the way I, 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 you know, because I come from that, that television background where we sum up everything in a few words, but it sounds like when you say it's the precursor it's the teaching of the spirit of the law like the reason for the law or the exact readiness right yeah. and um but there's also what this course will offer is um practical approaches um that folks can execute on their own so as you said to you know it'll save them some cash just in terms of the cost of consultants, that sort of thing. There'll be real tips here.
2: Exactly. And one of the things that I think, I think, I believe, I think that group learning is oftentimes the best learning and as organizations, it doesn't always have to be a competition. I think by allowing them at time through some of the activities that we're going to be doing in the class to, share their best practices, we're going to be able to learn from each other and come away with even more tools and techniques in order to, oh, well, I didn't think about doing it that way. That's a good idea because you only know what you know. Mm -hmm. I feel like life is about exposure and what you're exposed to. And oftentimes if we knew better, we would do better. And sometimes, like I said, some of these smaller organizations or even some of the larger ones, they don't necessarily... um, have all of the resources and we at NCQA don't necessarily have all the answers. We're just trying to be a conduit to help facilitate some of those conversations.
0: Well, we appreciate it, Dana. Thank you for facilitating the the class for us and and sharing your wide breadth of knowledge uh, with uh, our customers. We really, really appreciate it. And if you're interested in the class, uh, even if you've missed the date, uh, don't worry, because we record them and still offer them uh, sort of on demand. Just go to our website, www.ncqa.org. In the search box up there on the right, search education, you'll find it. The course is accreditation readiness. Our faculty member is Dana Bell. She's an NCQA veteran and a healthcare leader nationally. Thank you very much, Dana thank you our talk with ncqa veteran dana bell her webinar on accreditation readiness can be found through the education section of our website of course www.ncqa.org education training we are so excited to announce that our popular speaker series quality talks is now open for registration. The all-day event is April 21st, right here in Washington, D.C. But if you can't make it, no worries. Everything's also online. So line up, sign up, and register today at www.qualitytalks.org. That's qualitytalks.org. Well, as we say every episode, you can reach us here at Inside Healthcare anytime you like. We're not hiding, we wanna hear from you. We proudly welcome your thoughts, comments and suggestions, especially if you have a hot tip on a great possible guest for our show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org. And remember, this show has new episodes every other Wednesday. Tell everyone at work, at your doctor's office, at your meetings and webinars, we're here for you. Check out past episodes. Stay tuned for new ones. Binge all you like, subscribe, and, uh, you know, give us a uh, review once in a while. That'll help uh, boost our listeners. So for Dave Smolar, our producer, and the rest of the team here at Inside Healthcare, I'm NCQA Communications Director Matt Brock saying thank you for joining us for another episode. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.